Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Mindful You podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Ty Omri Span Ryan. Ty is a graduate from the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University. He also is a recipient of the 2016 Kansas Langston Hughes Poetry Award. He has also been a chief editor of many different publications as well as a writer, poet, preacher, teacher, and father. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? doing good how are you i'm doing great so it seems like you've done a lot of things so i wanted to start kind of like at the beginning i was reading your website and as i was reading your bio i learned that your parents were very artistic and involved people in the writing space writing haikus historical fictions operas music and many other pieces this had to have impact on your journey from the start of being exposed to this as like a child and so I'm curious, what was your experience growing up in an academic environment? And how did your parents shine light on your emerging interests in writing? I'm thinking about my dad first, who is a haiku writer, Dwight Lamont Wilson. And he also has written several historical fiction novels about our family. So obviously I, I wasn't reading historical fiction and haiku when I was little, but he was huge, huge fan of jazz and just a lover of music. So I recall a lot of his creativity influencing me at a young age because he would listen to everything from like John Coltrane to Cyndi Lauper. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I was just exposed to wide breath and he just never stops listening to music. He had 8,000 records on vinyl growing up. So I just was like immersed in music all the time. And then my mom a music teacher so she primarily a pianist and a vocalist neonu span she she went to oberlin conservatory of music so she was always playing the piano um out in the solarium while my dad is like playing records in the living room and reading tons of books so music was a really big influence on me from a young age and then when i got a little bit older like junior high high school that's when my dad started to introduce me to some of his writing. And in particular, the first book that I remember reading by him was, was like a retelling of the gospels of Jesus as if Jesus was born today. And like, he was like black and indigenous and born in the inner city and super poor. And it was like, Oh, it was super relatable. And I, I just, I was like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could rewrite history like that, you know? So I realized that in my poetry, I bring in so much history, my family's history, and also events in history that I think have really influenced humanity. I, I try to write about that. And when I say history, I mean current events as well. I'm also, that's a big inspiration for why I write, which I think comes from my dad. And the music, the music comes, comes in. I try to be as musical as possible with my writing. 
I can't sing as well as my mom, but I can sing a little bit. So I try, I try sometimes in my writing. So, yeah. What is it you actually mean when you say musical in your writing? How? The way it flows, the cadence, the words being used. Wow. It's it's a lot of things. I mean, I, I quote music a lot in my poetry. And then there are times when I'll, I'll sing a poem, part of a poem. And I also have been influenced by a, a movement of poets called the Breakbeat Poets, who take a lot of their influence from, from hip-hop, you know, and I take a lot of influence from hip-hop, but, you know, being my, my father's son, I also am very influenced by other forms of music, a lot of Black music, but, like, Black music off of, you know, from the fringes, like, Black banjo players. I, I play the banjo, so that's a big part of my identity as a, a creator. And black punk rock music is also a big part of my my influence as well. So yes, there's definitely some... I'll definitely be sharing some of those influences through some of my poetry as well today. So just to throw it out there, I actually got really involved in jazz because I've been playing drums for a long time. And I came across jazz drumming and I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> But Tito Puentes is my favorite jazz artist. And Esperaldo Spalding, some of my favorite jazz. Latin jazz just really does something to me. I'm just like, ooh. Oh, that's awesome you say that because, well, first of all, I've always like, like when I listened to jazz, my favorites were always the drummers. Like Art Blakey's my favorite yeah. jazz musician, you know? So, but also like I've gotten, I, you know, I, I grew up with Tito Puente, but. Tito Puente has taken on a new significance for me as I've gotten older because of my spiritual practice. I practice the African tradition of Ifa from uh, Yoruba land, Nigeria. So I, I listen to a lot of music that is about that spirituality. We call them Oriki in the tradition. And, and so I listen to a lot of stuff from Nigeria, but then Ifa came over into the, the new world in Cuba, it became Santeria. And so salsa is like, you know, the music of Orisha, you know. So I listen to a lot of uh, Tito Puente and, and Celia Cruz. And those drums are, are they, they definitely influence my work as well. And in particular, I love like the polyrhythmic African drum, you know. And I, I try to layer my poetry like they layer their drums, you know. So, yeah. Man, polyrhythms are hard. They like tear your brain apart while you're trying to do it. I can't play with it on the drums. I definitely cannot, but <laughs> it takes a long time. I can do like simple polyrhythms. I can't do anything complex or well, this is awesome. So I almost want to ask you, like, does reggae influence you? Like Nyabingi, dance hall, reggaeton? Because jazz, you know, black music, and then reggae is also kind of black music as well. Do you get enhanced by both of those style of genres? Definitely. I mean, you know, when I'm talking about spirituality, reggae, and also Rastafari has influenced me as a spiritual practitioner, but also a lot of my poetry is very deeply rooted in my, in, in Black spirituality. So, you know, so I try to eat well, which is, you know, the I Tao, the I Tao view of, you know, how you treat your body and your body being sacred and also the earth being sacred. So those connections I find like reggae is very grounding when I'm feeling spun out, stressed out. I'll put on some reggae. But I grew up with Bob Marley's Legend. Like my dad played that all the time growing up. And so I actually have a few poems that 
are in direct conversation with Bob Marley. So I, I definitely draw inspiration in my writing from reggae as well. Amazing. This is awesome. So, so you were born on the East Coast outside of Philly, having highly involved parents in academics and music as well that I'm hearing. I'm curious, like, what was your journey like becoming a writer? Because you actually just mentioned you didn't really read your dad's books until high school. And it almost took a little bit to be exposed. It took a while to be exposed. Were you feeling this path early or did it take till high school? Or was your dad kind of waiting for you to want to accept it? Or what was that like for you? Yeah, my so my parents are super cool. I mean, they're they're definitely hippies, but like, you know, black hippies so <laughs> the jazzy big afro you know trying to eat vegetarian sometimes kind of hippies and so they never like were seemed all that invested in like me being you know following a certain path you know there are certain there are certain things like i was expected to go to college that kind of thing but like they didn't really care if i wrote poetry or if i played piano like I picked up the guitar when I was in high school and they were they were fine with that and I started playing punk rock like they didn't whatever do you think but but my earliest like passion for writing probably came from comic books honestly like my I had two older brothers and they were they were always drawing and I would try to draw like them and I was like I suck at drawing so I would just make a story and then I think it was middle school where I was like I don't know how to get girls so I'm gonna like maybe if I write him a poem like that kind of was like my first you know dabbling into the world of poetry and then in, in junior high I think I I started to really love poetry when I had a teacher who she would for our final projects each semester would just let us she would expect 2,000 words of anything anything one year I did 2,000 words of a comic book. But the next year, I did 2,000 words of poetry. And it was like, oh, my God, the stuff that was coming out of me. I was, like, writing about Black angels and stuff. I was like, where is this? Like, I had no idea that where I was getting the, these images from. And it was, I just tapped into something. And it was like, oh, okay. Not only do I love doing this, but I can, I felt like I could communicate something from another dimension when I was writing poetry. And so that was kind of where that love really started to blossom in seventh, eighth grade. Wow. You're just like channeling something. That's so awesome to hear. So eventually you made your way to Naropa University, which has a very unique educational experience as you and I know from personal experience. And it mostly focuses on the contemplative aspect of learning process and the intentionality of the internal growth within the academics. And I'm curious, how was the direction of learning developed and informing your writing and style as your career manifesting in front of you? And also, like, did you have any other educational experiences before coming to Naropa, like college experience? Or was Naropa your first college experience? Yeah, so... My Naropa experience was just so wild, okay? Um, <laughs> because of, like, where I was in my development. In high school, I was, like, a really big Christian. Like, that was my identity. Like, I was, like, I was on the path of saving souls. You know, I wanted to be a missionary. Like, that was my, that was my dream job. And I also felt like I wasn't fully accepted in the church because my church, most of the people who went 
were white and it was really conservative. So, so a lot of my poems were about like wanting that full acceptance from my community and not feeling it, but also like having intense godly love. And then after high school, I ended up going to Temple University for, for one year and took a bunch of black studies courses and some of them were on black aesthetics. And so that opened me up to the world of black writing, drama and poetry. And then it also opened me up to like colonization. And so I got disillusioned with the church, didn't know where to go, found Thich Nhat Hans, Jesus and Buddha's brothers and told my mom, I'm really into this. And my mom being the uh, spiritual woman that she is was, was like, well, there's a Buddhist university. Have you ever heard of it? Not really. So I um, applied and got into Naropa in, I think it was 1999. <laughs> and it was, and they had just opened up a Sangha house, which was a dorm. And I don't think that Sangha house exists anymore, but it was very experimental. And I didn't live in the dorms. I lived off campus, but I hung out in the dorms quite a bit. And to my like very sheltered Christian eyes, you know, I was, I was blown away. You know, I had never... I'd been sober my whole life. I'd never had sex. And so <laughs> all these things were happening around me. I don't know what to do with this. So I just wrote, wrote it down, <laughs> wrote about my experience. And I wasn't going to Naropa for writing, actually, even though I had, I knew that I, I loved to write poetry. I actually went to Naropa because I wanted to explore spirituality. And in, in particular, I wanted to learn more about African spirituality. And at the time, there wasn't anything that was focused on African spirituality and also struggling with this idea that I had to prove my experience of racism was real. And I was getting a lot of like, well, you create your own reality. And I was like, what? I didn't create racism. Like this is fucked up. <laughs> you know, like it was. That's some bypassing right there. Oh, definitely so much. And there's like a lot of privilege, white privilege that I had never really experienced before on the East Coast, not realizing that the struggle that people go through who aren't born wealthy and white was really starting to bother me. And I was like, what am I? And I was just all spending all day and all night writing. And I was like, I need to just get in the writing department. I'm not going to try to be, you know, religious studies major. I'm just going to do, do writing. And and I loved having that experience and being able to workshop my stuff. It's so wild to me that you went to Naropa going for the spirituality part of your education, but not realizing the type of writing program that they have. So eventually you found your way to the writing program and you ended up graduating from the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, which is a really rad beat poet vibe and it's very unique experience and i'm curious what does disembodied mean to you and is there any insights or experiences that you want to share about your involvement in the program and how you know the program developed your writing and helped you along your way yeah so i think that there there were definitely experiences that i had to go through as a writer um, that all writers have to go through, but the feedback, the critique that we would do in classes, that was, you know, that was something that I learned 
I had to learn how not to take it personally and how to see it as something that, you know, would improve my writing. So that was a big part of it. I didn't know anything about beats, honestly, when I got to Naropa. I didn't know. It's embarrassing to say, like, I didn't know who, you know, who Walt Whitman was or <laughs> who Allen Ginsberg was even, you know, like, who's Trungpa? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know who Trungpa was. Like, I literally knew Thich Nhat Hanh and that was, that was my entire world. And maybe, like, Jim Carroll or something like that. Like, there was nobody that I'd studied in school that I had heard of before, especially in my very sheltered Christian high school experience. I didn't, I wasn't looking at stuff like that. So it free, definitely freed me. You know, a lot of those early poems were just laced with curse words and like, fuck God and stuff like that. You know, I was doing a lot of that, like acting out and like, you know, trying to shed some of the, some of the weight that I had on me, you know, guilt and repression that I had experienced in high school, my church. So I noticed that that being in, in the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetic was really important for me to be able to do that. Like, I don't know if a lot of other communities would have allowed me to be that openly irreverent. And uh, I know, notice you, you have a podcast with Candace Walworth on here and she was huge i mean she was basically the reason why i i went into the writing department because she had a class called socially engaged imagination and we would workshop stuff and i would like come in and i would share something and then everybody would there'd be like silence for like five minutes after i shared it and i'm like oh people are really thinking about what i'm saying this is important so maybe i should do this more <laughs> being heard feels powerful yeah. You know, and I think when you have a good message to say and you have a community that listens to you, you feel so heard and impactful to the space. And so that's cool. And Candace is a intellectual juggernaut, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Awesome. So, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier of what inspires you and what inspires your writing. Is there any like writers that have really stuck out to you throughout your career that have really inspired your style and your writing? And also, is there any other inspirations that are beyond writing itself that inspire your writing? Yeah. So the writer that I think of is like, I'm doing my, my Star Wars ranking. My grand master Jedi is, is definitely Sonia Sanchez, just because she's, Philly. I got to meet her, you know, at Naropa. She was always coming to the writing program, a summer writing program. And I've gotten to hang out with her in Philly too. She would always, you know, come and share poetry at various events. And whenever she's around, she like gives these like super warm hugs. She's just like, I mean, she feels like Yoda in her presence. It's like, I am safe and loved right here by this woman. And then, and then her style is just like, Oh man, I wish I could read poetry like that. And then I've always been really bad at memorizing my poems and then sharing them. Like every time I've tried, I've like forgotten and then panicked. And she was always like, no, I'm going to have my paper and I'm still going to have as much life as somebody who doesn't have a paper. And I was like, oh, I can do that. And so that's how I do it. And I don't, you know, I'm not apologetic about it. I'm just like, yeah, I have a piece of paper and you're still going to feel me, you know? So so Sonia Sanchez is definitely juggernaut. And, and then I, I just love place. So Walt Whitman being from South Jersey and 
and then uh, Mary Baraka being from North Jersey, like that's like my trinity, you know what I mean? So those poets definitely influenced me a lot. Yeah, so I would say that would be my lineage. It's the Council of the Force <laughs> for Star Wars. Yes. Awesome. So I want to take this opportunity to offer you a moment to share. You said you had like three poems, two short, one long. So I want to give you this opportunity to share two of your short ones, and then we can go to your long one later. All right. Sounds good. We're talking a little bit about musical influences, and, and this one came to mind because it's called Alegba, and I took Harlem Renaissance at Naropa with Akila Oliver, who's now an ancestor, and she would talk a lot about Langston Hughes and the blues poem. And so this is my attempt at a blues poem. Ilegba, part one, went down to the crossroads with banjo in hand, told my old lady, I'm going to see the man dressed in black and red, cigar dangling in his mouth, a fist full of rum, stank of that dirty, dirty South. I'll call him by his true name, Alegbara of the Path. If he accepts my chicken, well, now you do the math. Turning in a spiral, kisses on the neck, shouts to the heavens, he sips me a blank check. Cause I'm a holy roller, got the mojo in my pouch. Yes, I'm a holy roller, not trying to be no slouch. Oh, I'm a holy roller, mojo in my pouch. I'm a holy roller, not trying to be a slouch. Two, now that the way is open, broken bones everywhere, a death rattle, a baby chokes, an ice agent turns away a homeless family locked in cordoned white tape, a legba in rags, a legba in the soft skin of a babe, a legba collapsed in ventilators, a legba in our sickness of greed, warrior behind the door, when the streets of Yoruba land go silent and South America bleeds capital, can you take this offering and tell our ancestors, we're sorry, we didn't mean to squander it all. And if we pour out a libation, can you tell us the way home again? Ashe. Yes. Okay, I see what you mean. Like, you're reed singing it. I'm like bobbing to it. I can hear like a little shuffle pattern behind there. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah. It flows. I'm actually working on an audio book version of Beautiful Ashe. And so I, and I'm working with a production company, my mom's production company. So she's, I'm like, yeah, I want music in my audio book, you know? And so I, I totally hear like banjo and harmonica and, you know, all that good stuff in there. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I was reading through your website and I realized you and a co-founder found a group called Black, which stands for Black Literature and Arts Collective of Kansas. And I'm curious, could you give our audience an idea of what this group does and how it was created by you and the others involved and essentially what inspired you to create this project? Yeah. So first of all, I, Black kind of came out of the Langston Hughes Awards that take place in, in Lawrence every year. 
I actually submitted Memoirs of a Sweet Black Boy, which is a group of poems that's in Beautiful Ashe, because my wife was like, you should really submit your poetry to this award ceremony. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I did it and then I won. And I was like, oh, wow. So I was like, nobody wants to hear these poems about this black kid from the East Coast in the middle of Kansas. Like, yeah, we do. Cares. We do want to hear them. <laughs> yeah, they were like super into it. After that, the next year I went and I was like, whoa, I'm really feeling these poets here. And I reached out and I said, you know, we should try to start something together. And the next recipient, I believe, was Alex Kimball Williams, who's like, Lawrence is like, she, I feel like she's like a lineage holder in Lawrence. She's younger than me, but she feels like an elder already. And so we started the collective mostly because I, Kansas is really, really white. And so sharing my poetry can be difficult, you know, because I'm talking about my racial identity and something that I felt would be helpful was if I had a collective around me who's like, you know what, sharing this stuff's hard and we're going to share with you, you know, so you don't have to share by yourself. So I feel like that's really what Black was about. But I also feel like I can't talk about Black Lawrence without talking about my experience in Naropa because I started Allies in Action at Naropa while I was there as a student and also was the editor of Tindril, which was a journal of diversity. And that really came out of my feelings of like, man, it's really hard being Black in Boulder. And being Black in Naropa was also very difficult. And and I was getting triggered all the time and microaggressions, which I didn't have language for at the time. I was like, I'm not going to be able to graduate from here if I don't do something to try to change it. And Allies in Action was really like, how do we address unaddressed privilege and oppression in the school environment. And I feel like Black Lawrence tries to do a lot of that as well. So how do we create space for Black creators in a place where there's not a lot of us? So, I mean, it seems like a lot of your writing deals with your identity and where you're from. And I'm curious, like when you talk about your poetry, when you say your poetry, when you read your writings, how do you feel like it's heard from the white community and or communities not of your own do you feel like those are the people mostly listening to it like who do you share your poetry with and how is it received i guess yeah i mean that might be one reason why i decided to write a book is because most you know 90 percent of the audience for poetry in lawrence is white and so i was like well my friends across the country are not 90 percent white so if i write a book then I'll be able to share it with them as well. But I, I think in Lawrence, because there's such a spiritual component, that poem Alegba talks about an African deity named Alegba, or also known as Eshu. And so I think people recognize that, oh, he has a knowledge about African spirituality that we don't hear often. And I connect that spirituality to social justice issues. So I get asked to, share at rallies or or the unitarian church wants to have someone come in and talk about racial justice so they they'll call on me you know so i think that spirituality and racial justice is really where that intersection is really where people are looking to hear my voice share so you've mentioned Aleg- allegra allegba allegba yeah allegba a couple times now and it sounds like it's in your poetry and it's also in your heart and your spirit. 
Can you speak more about this deity to us? Can you let us know what it is? Yeah. So Alegba, the reason why I often start with Alegba is because there's many deities in my tradition. I should say I was introduced to this tradition at Naropa too through Lou Flores, who is now my teacher, known as Awo Ifandunsi, but he he was a student at Naropa while I was a student there as well. And he introduced me to the pantheon of Orishas, which there are hundreds of Orishas, but in the pantheon, there's an Orisha who opens the door so that you can speak to the others and you can speak to God, you can speak to ancestors and his name is Alegba. And so, and one reason why I talk about Alegba in conjunction with the banjo or with music is because Alegba is often imaged as like a really smooth, he's like a really smooth, handsome devil, if you will, right? So in the colonizers thought that Alegba was was the devil, but really he's like a trickster god. He has similarities to trickster gods, but you would go to the crossroads and you hear that story of Robert Johnson going to the crossroads and asking the devil to help him play the guitar. Well, that devil at the crossroads is Alegba. Alegba's at the crossroads and Alegba helps you walk down the path. If you want to walk down a path, you got to go through Legba first. And Legba says, okay, you can go down this way. I see that as a Legba, the handsome devil who was like, all right, here you go. Here's your skills, which I also, you know, when I got my banjo, I was like, a Legba helped me play my banjo better, you know? So, <laughs> so that's a little bit about a Legba. Is a Legba connected to a musical sense or could a Legba be connected to like a physical sports or career-based sense or is it strictly to music? Oh, I mean, a Legba is one of the first Orishas, if not the first Orisha. So he is infinite. So all of the Orisha have a physical manifestation. So if I want to talk to a Legba, I go to a crossroads. Like a Legba is the crossroads but Alegba, it's like the polyrhythm thing. Alegba is all of those things at the same time. He yeah. is the crossroads. He's handsome. Devil. It's where the polyrhythms meet on the one. Yeah, he's the trickster god, but he's also the god of darkness. He's also like a little child who likes to play and eat candy. And he's also, you know, this old decrepit man who's like kind of cranky. You know what I mean? He's like all these things at the same time. Very cool. Wow. All right, so if you're at a crossroads and you see a child, a cranky old man, or some handsome-looking devil, you better propose a good question. <laughs> yes, yes, and be and be respectful because yeah. it can come back to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want to mess with a, a handsome devil. Yeah. So <laughs> I like this. So writing has the ability to empower the reader and allow them to engage in thoughtful dialogue. And my question to you is, why is this important to have the capacity to be willing to hear and listen to content that sparks our minds and hearts? Like, why is it important to, like, be challenged or to be insightful when we're hearing things? Like, what does that do to you and what do you think it does to the listener? Oh, man. So this relates to another big influence on me, which is another Didi or Orisha named Obatala. You know, I used to think when I was at Naropa, I was like, all right, I'm trying to wake people up to the realities of the world with my writing. So my writing was super, you know, like in your face. Like I was like Spike Lee. I want to do what Spike Lee did 
you know, <laughs> with my writing, you know. And now I'm at a place where, as a practitioner of Ifa's, Obatala has become the Orisha that I actually identify with the most in that he's he's the Orisha of peace, calm, and the expansion of consciousness. So when I think of expanding consciousness, I think of how do we realize the breadth of reality is that harsh reality, but it is also like spiritual evolution at the same time. And part of how I go about doing that is going into extremely decrepit or traumatic experiences or events in the world and trying to find where there is light, where there's beauty and trying to be an expanse there, you know? So, you know, one thing that, one symbol that has resonance for me is the tree. I often will like try to imagine myself as a tree and how do I be the tree? How do I be like that nurturer, the one that breathes life to all of humanity? But also the tree is a site of so much atrocity in the black community because we were hung from trees. So how do I go to those trees of those places of a lynching and how do I heal the roots of the tree? So those are like both what I am trying to do with my writing. Yeah, wow. That's powerful. And I can resonate with that. I think as we get older, we're kind of angsty. We're kind of like, rawr. You know, we got some claws and we want to pounce and we want to just like claw at things. And then as we become more skilled and more mindful and conscious of our craft, we become a little bit more gentle. And the word I just thought about was like beautifully honest, you know, it's like you got to say what's up, but you got to like hold it too, you know, so it's like we're beautifully honest. You got to say what's real, but you got to do it in a way that people are willing to listen because if you're just going to like swipe at them, they may not hear your message, even though it's super powerful. Yeah. And that was that was really a gift that I learned a lot about at Naropa was like be in like a town hall meeting and someone would say something that was like super triggering or like, you know, a, a microaggression. And my friends would be like, oh my God, fuck that guy. Why? What an asshole. And I would go over and I'd be like, hey, I just want to ask you like why you have that perspective. And then I'd have a conversation I'm like, that's interesting. And this is my perspective. And they're like, how do you talk to that? How can you talk to that person now? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just, I thought, how can they change if they don't hear any other perspectives? Like that's so much what we do is we hear someone who has a different perspective. We're like, fuck that person. I'm not talking to that person. And what we really want is for them to not hold that perspective when we have a dialogue with them about it, you know? So that was something that I, I figured I wouldn't be able to change anything if I wasn't able to open up to other people's perspectives more. And it's something I've really strived to do. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's not really your responsibility to go make sure this person isn't micro triggering people, but it's also their responsibility to understand that they are micro triggering people. So it's a super powerful that you can just, other than saying like, fuck that guy, you walk up to him and be like, Hey, like, I'm curious. Why'd you say that? Like, where does this come from? And, and it's not your responsibility to do that, but it takes a lot of, power to be able to do that and you know they probably just don't even know what they're doing until 
they're confronted and they're realizing there's different perspectives out there that are maybe conflicting to what they're saying. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, I also learned from some amazing teachers of color at Naropa and how they would navigate it too. You know, one of my mentors is Soltar Tivamanda, who taught in the, the counseling department along with Malika Pettigrew. And I took a multicultural counseling, I think it was, course with Malika. And I mean, like people would say stuff and, you know, when she was trying to share various experiences of oppression for herself or for other people, and people would just constantly challenge her and be up in her face about it. And I was like, how is she staying so cool? And I just like would just watch her. And I never really figured out what, I mean, I knew she was, she meditated, but you know, I was like, oh, she's like super spiritually grounded. Maybe that's what I need. And, you know, kind of pushed me more into spirituality, but you know, I, I know when I need to take my breaks from that and like walk away from it. And I also know how to be skillful because I've seen so many people do it, you know, still frustrating. I hear that though. So I just got one more question for you. And then I want to hear that last poem that you have for us. So you talked to us about a couple projects that you have, and I'm curious, do you have any other projects or any other writings that you're currently working on and you're excited in the moment about that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, I have so many books in my head right now. They're just in your head. <laughs> they're, they're in my head. And I, you know, I think we started out like I'm a, I'm a father. So I have, I'm, I'm a father of like young children. So parents of young children are like, yeah, like my youngest is three and my oldest is six. So it's basically like, I can't really leave the room <laughs> without, you know, and then I'm a teacher middle school English in Topeka with really needy students. So I'm pretty, by the end of my school day, I'm pretty like emotionally drained because these, you know, like I'm basically a surrogate parent for a lot of these kids. So I don't have time to write like I used to. So my projects tend to be more about how can I collaborate? How can I bring Black Lawrence together during a pandemic? And how can I reach out to the indigenous community? How can I inspire my students? Like a lot of my creativity goes into those avenues right now. You know, Candace, one thing she taught me was the first thing that you write, that you put out there is got to just be like you're like getting stuff off your chest. And then the next thing you write is like your truest desire. And I feel like Beautiful Ashe is like me telling my story. But now like I want to tell a story that doesn't have to do with me. You know, I want to like, what I really want to focus on is like Afrofuturism and poetry. You know, what does that look like? That's, you know, that's the next place for me. So, man, I would love for you to be my English teacher when I was little. You seem like such a rad teacher to have. <laughs> it's fun. I love, I love my students for sure. Very cool. Okay. This is our time where I want to offer you another moment to read your poem before we say goodbye. So, do you have another one for us? Yeah, I do. And this poem is African tradition. Pouring libations is a necessity. Pour out water to the earth. And my earth is the page. And this poem is to all of my ancestors and all of those many teachers who have influenced me on this walk are named in this poem as well. So we pour libations to all those people. This poem is called a drinking gourd. To, to Mama Wata, 
the Iami, the primordial mothers of creator, the red, black, green of Africa, the quiet warriors in swamps of Seminole, the sweet grass, the Geechee Gullah on islands of rice and cracks of whip, the Sarahs on Underground Railroad, the Irish Quakers with abolitionist maps, the preachers and poets, the singers and black banjo players, the Ida B. Wells, a man was lynched today, the Howard Thurmans in the silence of blackness and the disinherited black Jesus, to the gay Kami, Bayard Rustin, the full self, R.G. Lord, the face smashed but crown intact, Fannie Lou Hamer, the children first, Ella Baker, to spit talking Amiri Baraka, to the black Chinese giant, Grace Lee Boggs, woman and man and neither, Carrie Edwards, no gender, teacher of dreads, Akila Oliver, taking youth back to Africa, Malaika, and to the justice seer, Vincent Harding, I hear where my grandmother is from. I see her. I see you in the depths of the belly. I see you on the slave block. I see you cutting your hands on cotton. I see you take those whips like a good nigga. I see you hiding the names of our gods in our songs and writing the words of the drum on our hearts. I see you drinking to forget the child sold down the river. I see you Uncle Tomming the hurt of your wife taken by Massa nightly. I see you stealing literacy. I see you writing the map to freedom in blood. I see you sanctifying nature with your strange fruit. And to the people who think they white, I reverse engineered your dog whistle. Donald Trump doesn't care about white people. When Mama Gaia gets the fever, you will burn in the fire next time like the rest of us. Your ancestral savior, John Brown, knew that and went flame resistant. But you stand in picket lines for POTUS and tweet a petition. You excommunicate your grandmother on Facebook because she made the same choice you would have in her shoes. You speak with someone else's voice but neglect your own. You've left your ancestors in the old world and stole new ones, which you promptly burned on magazine covers. You buried the magic of herbs and roots, dig it up again, and sell all your belongings back to the credit card company that leased them to you in exchange for your slave ships and Amistad friendships, like we did before the Irish were exploited for their desperation in a world built on hate so we can halt the machine of our inevitable demise. And to the people who think they Black, I got my race car dog whistle. Let's go back to Africa again where gods and goddesses look like us, dark and queer as hell. Let's go to the lynching tree and heal her roots. Let's shut up already and talk with drums again. Let's dial 1-900 save a coon. Let's have days celebrating some black folks other than MLK. This Lawrence fiery Kansas. On Langston Hughes Day, we whisper rivers in the ears of our elders. Our words kiss black skin. On Tiger Dowdell Day, we wear black gloves and speak only black love. We pour liquor to the martyrs of the cop's gun, erect monuments to black potential snuffed and relit. What was snuffed? Get lit, get lit. Ashe Almighty, may the world get lit. Oh boy. Wow.
that had a vibe of getting something off your chest. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That was some powerful stuff. I love hearing how you did interlace some of the like very potential people in your poems. Yeah, I hope that they felt me, those ancestors, for sure. I remember seeing Amiri Baraka many times at Naropa. He was like a reoccurring guest, and he like he kind of blew my mind. Yeah. So hearing him in your poem, I was just like, oh. That's like one of those people who's like, he could just, that fire, feel like my fire, like, I don't know if it gets dimmer, but it gets like more contained. And I feel like his just did not, it just was like, always just like, boom, boom, like explode. I was like, how does he do that? Unextinguishable. Yes. All right. So thank you so much. Before we go. Do you want to shout out your book, your social media, where people can find you, like our audience, if they want to find more, where can they go? Yeah. So my book is Beautiful Ashe, Memoirs of a Sweet Black Boy and Other Poems. It can be found on blurb.com. I'm kind of like anti-Amazon. And so if you look me up on Amazon, you will not find me. I know it doesn't affect Jeff Bezos at all, but that's how I am. And my webpage is tiamri.com, T-A-I-A-M-R-I.com. I try to have events once a month. So get on those. The newsletter is a, is a way, um, if you join my newsletter, that's a way to like keep in contact. I would love to have people. And I try to be online too, because so much of my audience is, is abroad. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it was just so nice hearing about like your work, your knowledge, your, like all your projects and just your passion for what you're doing. And also just like alumni to alumni. It's just nice to reconnect and hear experiences from a different world. And and honestly, I think you should do the audio book. I think there's something really beautiful there. And I would love to listen to that once you got that out. Oh, yeah, it's coming. It's It's like for sure. I already have... I have grant money for that and I, you know, already working with a production company. So that is like a hundred percent coming in the next year. Awesome. So again, thank you for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you and thank you. Thanks, David. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.